of reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him. And spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins in whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, for your spirit, for your son, Jesus. Our lives are open before you. There is nothing that is hidden from your sight. We ask now that you would search us and know us and speak to us, that as we sit with your scriptures, we may behold something of your beauty, of your glory, of your justice, of your peace that perhaps we have never perceived before or perhaps that we have simply grown blind to this week for whatever reason. We come into this space with lots of different experiences of joy and sadness and excitement and frustration and boredom and we bring all of those things before you now. We lay them at your feet. We ask you to meet us right where we are and speak through Christ our Lord. 
Amen. So let's just be honest. There's some weird stuff in this gospel story, right? I mean, Beelzebul, Satan, the unforgivable sin, Jesus apparently snubbing his mom and brothers. Do you ever find yourself getting tripped up on stuff like that as you read the Bible or as you hear it read or as you're here in a church service and you're going along? Do you ever find yourself tripping over things like that and finding it difficult to connect with the biblical text? For some of us, we get tripped up just because those things jump off the page at us uh, and sound so strange that we find it really hard to take the story seriously. Either we get freaked out by what we read or we just find that it's so ancient and spooky sounding that it's like, how could this possibly have anything to do with the real life that I live in the here and now on planet Earth? For others, though, I think we get tripped up in the opposite direction. Some of us are so overly familiar with the biblical stories and texts that we don't even notice the weird stuff anymore. As if it's just like, totally normal to hear words like Beelzebul spoken in a public gathering and in a non-joking way. Or if it's not disturbing to hear Jesus speak about some sort of eternal and unforgivable sin, and even worse, when he describes what that's like, it sounds like something probably lots of us have done, to be honest, right? I certainly have, as we're understanding it in the plain reading of the text. Stuff is weird. But the weird stuff is important. And whether you're more prone to recoil from it or to just sort of sleepily nod along through it, I would invite you right now, this morning, to simply acknowledge what your impulse is and then plug in and engage afresh with this story this morning because it really is a remarkable one. And it's one that really is worth engaging, paying attention to, and seeking to overcome some of these stumbling blocks that get in our way. And it really does have everything to do with the real lives that you and I live in the earth today, this week. The story helps us understand more deeply what it looks like to belong to God and to belong to God's family. And this is also a story that exposes some of those hard-to-see dynamics that are at play in our own lives that keep us from entering more fully into a robust, thriving life with God. And, those two, and two of those dynamics that this story exposes are confusion and restraint, which feed off each other. This story helps us see about how our confusion about Jesus leads to our attempts to restrain Jesus in our lives and in the lives of others. And it's also a story that prompts us to consider how our efforts to restrain Jesus or to fit him into existing categories or the commitments that we already hold. Those things only feed our confusion about all sorts of things. Good and evil, for example. What God is like what spirituality is about, etc. It's a vicious cycle, the confusion and restraint feedback loop, and it's one that we all live in to one degree or another, but this story is one that helps us see how in Jesus, God cuts through our confusion and our restraining him to disrupt the cycle by showing up in our midst and by liberating us from everything that holds us captive, everything in here, 
and everything out there that threatens to separate us from God and the fullness of life that he intends for his world, and by graciously welcoming us into his own family. But to discover all this good stuff, (laughs) maybe God has something to say about this, I don't know. (laughs) To discover the good stuff, we have to let the Bible stay weird. Because it's actually in the weird stuff that we discover the good stuff. And we have to listen for the voice of God who speaks to us today through these ancient scriptures. So let's just dive in and see what happens. The gospel writer Mark, he shows us these two different reactions to Jesus. His family's reaction and then the scribes, the religious leader's reaction. Both of which are confused. And it's almost like Jesus is showing up as the whistleblower in a dysfunctional family system. Okay, in in family systems theory, there's this character, the whistleblower, who's the one who sort of calls out the dysfunction in a family. And that person is almost always considered to be crazy by the rest of the members of the family, right? This is what God is like when he shows up in our world, a world that is held captive to sin and death, a world that has turned away from God. When God in person shows up in our world, He's like the whistleblower, and everyone thinks he's nuts. Chances are we do that with him as well when he shows up in our lives and invites us to follow him. But let's start with Jesus' family. What are they doing? They're trying to restrain him because people are saying that Jesus is out of his mind. Now just think about this for a minute. Put yourself in his family's shoes and just imagine what you would think. If you were way back then and there, and Jesus were like your brother, part of your family, what would you do? Or think about it this way, like if you're a parent, for example, what kind of life of faith do you desire for your child? Or for any of us, what kind of life of faith do you desire for yourself? What does that look like? What does spiritual maturity and thriving look like in your imagination? Well, it's probably not the sort of life that puts like you or your children in this place of being seriously misunderstood or marginalized, right? For most of us, we envision a life that fits nicely into the structures of our world without a whole lot of friction, like like the way my life already is, but with more prayer or something, right? We want a good job. We want a happy family. We want financial security and a life of faith that falls in line with that overall vision. But here's the thing. What we see in Jesus is that his life of faith, it's not like that at all. It's not this little thing that like fits comfortably into some prefab way of life that everybody's already thinking is normal. What Jesus does, the way he lives, the way he treats people is strange. And it's beginning to concern his family. And so here we see they're trying to get Jesus to just take it down a notch. Please, you're freaking everybody out. They're trying to restrain him. And just when we might be tempted to say, well, you know, that's, I mean, that seems kind of reasonable. Mark introduces another story, and he splices it right into the middle of this one about Jesus and his family. 
And that story is the one about Jesus' encounter with the religious leaders. Now, I'm a sports fan, which means sometimes the story about my favorite team is attached to the story about another team with whom my team is in competition, right? And there are moments where it's helpful to have, like, the picture-in-picture screen, or I've got two games going on at once because what happens in that game is intertwined with the destiny of my team that is over here playing in this game. And so to have two stories happening at once is helpful sometimes because I realize that what's happening in one is related to what's happening in another. And that's kind of what Mark does here as he takes these two stories and he puts one sandwiched right into the middle of another. It's something Mark likes to do in his gospel. Scholars, in their erudite way, call this the Mark sandwich, which I like. So this first story is about Jesus and his family, which we're here. It's going to pick up again in verse 31. And the second story, which is sandwiched right into the middle, is this one in verses 22 to 30, where Jesus is encountering the religious leaders from Jerusalem. So what is going on here, and why is Mark putting these stories together? Well, let's look at the scribes. Who are they? These guys are the religious leaders, right? We've, we've met them before as we've gone through Mark's gospel. These are the empowered, authorized interpreters of the law. And presumably what's going on here is that a delegation of these guys have come from Galilee to Jerusalem on official business of the Jewish court. It seems that they've heard about Jesus's miracles, uh, and they're worried that the city of Capernaum, where Jesus has been staying, has become what they would have called a seduced city. In other words, it's one that has fallen under the influence of a false teacher, which is what they're perceiving Jesus to be. And so here come the scribes, these religious leaders. And as they encounter Jesus, what they discover as they meet him is that they cannot fit him into any of their pre-existing theological categories. He doesn't fit within their paradigm. And so what they do, rather than rethink their paradigm, is that they accuse Jesus of Two charges, one of being demon-possessed, we see here, and two of being in cahoots with this character Beelzebul, the prince of demons, whom they identify as the animating force behind what Jesus is doing. Like I said, there's weird stuff in this story, right? The Bible consistently speaks about evil in terms that are more personal and more personified than we are typically comfortable with in our own cultural moment. But that is what the Bible does. That's how the Bible speaks. And Jesus, when he responds to these scribes, he does what he usually does, and he responds on their own terms. He tells them this parable about the Satan, the accuser, who is the more common name and face of the evil organization, if you will, in the Bible, more common than Beelzebul, this other one who makes his appearance here. And Jesus simply asks this question, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom or a house that's divided against itself, it can't stand but is coming to an end. Or in other words, it's totally absurd or even illogical to think that the work of overcoming evil is somehow itself evil. Jesus is simply pointing out the absurdity of this. Could you religious leaders be any more confused? Are you so blinded by your assumptions that you end up calling good evil? Are you so far removed from this invitation to choose life and not death that we talked about last week that you end up confusing one for the other? If Satan were busy at work defeating himself, then he wouldn't be much of a threat to be worried about, would he? 
And that kind of enemy, a self-defeating one, would be nothing to worry about because that kind of enemy would be weak. Just let it do its thing. He'll ruin himself. But no, Jesus says, the enemy that threatens us all is not weak, but strong. And anyone who's ever done any work of just studying human history or looking at your own life or trying to overcome your own obstacles or trying to seek healing in places where you've found yourself powerless or profoundly stuck in a harmful habit or way of life. We know this to be true. That which threatens our well-being, be it things inside of us or unjust systems and structures in our world, the enemy is not weak. The enemy is strong. And Jesus is saying that what he's come to do is something that the religious establishment and no political establishment has ever been able to do for lack of both power and integrity. No religious or political establishment has ever been able to wrangle evil into some manageable-sized foe that can be conquered. That success story isn't out there. But Jesus is saying that is exactly what he has come to do, to overpower evil itself, to bind the strong man, and to plunder his house. And this programmatic statement of Jesus, as we've already seen in recent weeks, it's a direct challenge to the religion and the religious leaders because Jesus is suggesting that they are part of the problem that God has sent him to solve. And this becomes even more clear in this next section when he begins to talk about this eternal and unforgivable sin. Okay, unforgivable sin. How many of you have ever felt confused about this part of the scriptures or, or kind of freaked out, weirded out, concerned? Okay, I remember one time a friend of mine, uh, his mother came to me distressed because she feared that her son had committed this. Her son had said something that to her sounded like blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and she was absolutely terrified that her son had done something that put him across some threshold beyond which God's mercy could not touch him. And she was genuinely in anguish about the peril of her son. And I think what we've got in this passage is something that says absolutely nothing like what she has in mind. And it's important to understand that. These confused scribes and their resistance to Jesus, they go so far as to identify Jesus' spirit as an evil one, and Jesus responds to this with these shocking words, right? That all sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And what Jesus is saying there is not that there's some particular sentence or concept, which if you or I say it or believe it, that we cross this line that puts us out of the reach of God's mercy. What Jesus is saying is that it's important, if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to see he's talking to the scribes, okay? And he's talking in the scribes' own language and categories to them about a thing. The scribes considered blasphemy to be a really serious matter, 
That's like basically defiant hostility against God, which was understood in the Jewish teaching at the time to be within a, like a larger category of profaning the name of God. It's like third commandment violations. And specifically, statements against the power or majesty of God were considered to be blasphemous. And in the scribal tradition, that kind of blasphemy, as well as certain other sins, were considered to be unforgivable. Okay, so the scribes had their own idea of this unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy. And so, for example, there's a classical legal interpretation within the tradition that says, quote, the Holy One, blessed be he, pardons everything else. But on profanation of the name, that is blasphemy, he takes vengeance immediately. And so what Jesus is saying as he turns to the scribes and tells them that blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is an eternal and unforgivable sin, what he's doing is he's speaking the language of the scribes as he speaks to the scribes to explain to them that the spirit that animates his own ministry is none other than the spirit of the Holy One of Israel, the Spirit of God himself, and according to their own laws, their opposition to that spirit, Jesus's spirit, the spirit of the Holy One, their opposition is unforgivable according to their own laws. Because what they're doing is the direct, defiant hostility toward God himself, for which there is no means of forgiveness within their religious system of which they are the leaders. What Jesus is saying is not some declaration to all of us that there's this one thing that if you do it, there's no coming back. What he's saying is to these religious leaders something profound about his own identity as the Son of God and the identity of his own spirit as the Spirit of God. He's not trying to warn us about a particular sentence that we might say. But Mark does want to warn us, I think, about the danger of resisting the great physician, right? If God's healing and forgiveness for the world come through Jesus, what would it mean to restrain him, to oppose him, to resist him? If Jesus is the one who is actually stronger than evil, the one who comes by the power of the Holy Spirit to liberate God's people from evil's powerful grip, what would it mean to identify Jesus and his spirit as the enemy? Or for that matter, as irrelevant, as having nothing to do with our real lives? It would be to confuse good and evil. It would be to confuse liberation and captivity. It would be to resist the one whom God has sent to help. And that kind of confusion is exactly what leads every single one of us to seek to restrain Jesus' activity in our lives in all kinds of small and big ways. And we do it all the time, don't we? What does restraining Jesus look like? in your own life? Hold that question. We find ways to make following Jesus less weird, don't we? We find ways to make following Jesus less disruptive of our status quo, less transformative of our hopes and dreams, less provocative, less dangerous 
and quite frankly, less interesting, right? For Jesus' family, they held on to this notion of social decorum and a vision for what a reasonable life of faithfulness would look like. And then they interpreted what Jesus was doing in light of what they already thought he ought to be doing. And so what happens is they become concerned about him, perhaps even thinking that he's losing his mind, and they try to rein him in. Their confusion prompts their efforts to restrain him. But for the, for the scribes who held to this strict religious law, they interpreted Jesus' actions in light of their own prior understanding of what God is all about, right? They already are confident in what they know about God, their theology. And so when they encounter Jesus, they interpret who he is and what he's doing through their grid, and they end up deciding that Jesus is actually evil because it's, it's either him or their system, and they go with their system. The whistleblower's crazy. It can't possibly be our own dysfunction. And they end up wanting to kill him. And so their predisposition to want to restrain Jesus leads to this complete confusion about Jesus and what he's doing. And Mark splices these two stories together. He brings them together in order to make a point that the well-intentioned, albeit confused, restraint that we see in Jesus' immediate family and the far more sinister forms of resistance to Jesus that we see among the religious leaders, these two things are cut from the same cloth. These two forms of wanting to restrain Jesus are related. That's the point of the Mark sandwich here. And we're supposed to see ourselves as being also cut from that same cloth in the way we respond to Jesus. And as you and I have grown up inside of our highly individual, individualistic society, we are extra prone to living with this kind of confusion about who Jesus is. Why? Because we don't like to think of ourselves as being captive to anyone, do we? We don't need a liberator at least if you're coming from the privileged sector of society, like most of us are, we don't feel the need for liberation. We feel the need for independence. We like to be independent of our own lives, the authors and the protagonists of our own stories. But Mark, as he speaks about our human situation, he speaks very, very differently about what is going on in the world. And he presents two kinds of kingdoms, two kinds of rulers. And as human beings, we are never outside the powerful influences of the forces that are external to us. And the danger for us in our moment is that what we might perceive as liberty, the freedom to do what we want, just might be captivity in disguise. The tyranny of self-rule as we are free to act in an unrestrained way on our own foolish desires that lead us away from what is good and make us more participants in the tragic drama of this trajectory away from God than the beautiful drama that unfolds in and through Jesus. Mark is telling us that the independence is not only an illusion, but it's overrated. 
because the good king has come whose rule over the world and over your life is actually better than your own and better than my own. Look at the promise that Jesus offers in verse 28, which we so easily blow by as on our way to the, to the obstacle of the unforgivable sin. We, we gloss right over verse 28, which says, Truly I say to you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. In other words, there is no unforgivable sin. That's the point of Jesus' passage about the unforgivable sin. In his system, there isn't one. In the scribes' system, they have condemned their self of it already. But in Jesus' own words, what he's saying is that any sin any blasphemy shall be forgiven by him. There is nothing that puts you outside the reach of God's love and grace. And that is a profoundly astounding statement. How could it be true? Because the evil that's in you and the evil that's in me and the evil that is in the whole world is actually no match for him. Because he's the stronger man than the strong man. And what he's come to do is to bind him up and plunder his house. As you look at the ways that you and I restrain Jesus, like that's what we're restraining in our lives. How do we do it? We rationalize, we intellectualize, right? We find ways to water down the invitation of Jesus so that it just mixes better with the stuff that's already in our lives. We find ways to make it less disruptive of what we're already doing. And as we do it, we find ourselves partaking less and less of the liberation that Jesus actually offers us. Do you want to be free of that which holds you captive? Do you want to be free of the places where you're stuck in your life? Do you long for a world of justice that you just don't see? Or for a peace that it seems like our world aches for but just can't figure out how to achieve. That is the world that God is creating in Jesus. And the life of following Jesus is the life of entering into seeking that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's a beautiful and powerful invitation. It's a trajectory of life that's aimed toward the future that God promises, a future that has already come in Christ, and that's our hope in him. And as Mark pulls these stories back together of the family and of the scribes, and we see Jesus' family, once again, they're looking for him. And the crowd around Jesus and his disciples is so large that his family can't get to him. They're standing outside, and they call out from the edge of the crowd, and the crowd passes along this message, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus just answers with this simple response, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, other passages show us the care and concern Jesus has for his family. So we know he's not just like dissing them or disregarding them. That's not, that's not his style. This is the same Jesus who looked upon Mary from the cross and looked at his disciple John and says, Behold your mother. What is Jesus saying? He's simply making a point that there's this family connection that runs even deeper than our nuclear families, deeper than genetics, deeper than a shared history. And Jesus is looking around at these people, most likely the 12 disciples who've been with him on the mountain, and he says, here are my mother and brothers. 
Those who recognize Jesus for who he is and align themselves with his way. God calls those people family. Family. The crowd around Jesus is doing what Jesus' immediate family and the religious leaders are not doing. They're simply recognizing Jesus' agenda as good. And they want in. The members of God's family are those who find their hope in aligning their lives with God's purpose of bending their lives toward him rather than demanding that God bend his lives toward theirs. But here's the irony that Mark will explore in the remainder of the gospel. What God is doing in Jesus, Jesus isn't only that great king who's come to defeat evil but he's come to do it as the great king who's going to bend his life to its own breaking point in order to rescue us who won't bend. And that is the shocking piece of this whole story, is the self-giving love of God in Christ who moves toward our brokenness, who moves toward our sinfulness, who moves into the thick of evil, who takes it all himself in order to bind it and crush it even as it is crushing him in order to liberate us from its captivity. And that's why Jesus can say what no one else can say. All the sins and all the blasphemies uttered will be forgiven because he himself has come to extinguish the power that they hold so that they are nothing. They are nothing to him. What would it look like for you this week to relinquish your restraining of Jesus and instead rest in the arms of the one who has come to restrain all that threatens to keep you from the life for which you were made, for the beauty and the justice and the love and the forgiveness and the healing and the peace that God shows up in your world to unleash in your midst that you may know him and know his life and share it in his family? What would it look like to live into that truth that Tuck shared at the beginning of the confession of sin from Henry Nouwen's quote, that truth that even when you cannot feel it, you are God's beloved child, that you belong to his family, and that in Christ, God has set you free to do his will, to love God, to love neighbor, and to receive love of God and neighbor as we enter together in that way of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would bless us and keep us. Hold us fast to yourself and unfold before us your way of life. We thank you for this beautiful message of Christ who has come to bind the strong man and plunder his house, and we are grateful to be plundered from all of those things that weigh us down and hold us, from our sins, from our addictions, from the places where we are stuck, from the places where we are frustrated, from our own self-doubt and self-criticism. We are grateful that you have come to liberate us by your power and by your mercy into a life of freedom, liberty to love you, to be loved by you, 
and to share that love as members of your family. Would you awaken us to your love? And would you actually change our lives so that we might enter more deeply and more fully into the life for which you have made us? Through Christ our Lord. Amen.